Perfectionism is almost an, a tendency to fill a worth void with a social drug that is a quick fix, but very quickly dissipates. Hi guys, Anna, and welcome back to the Rachel J podcast. It's been again so amazing to see all of you enjoying the recent episodes and I'm so grateful for you all tuning in. If you haven't already, make sure you hit subscribe so that you get the latest episodes as soon as they are released. This week, I'm sitting down with mental health expert, speaker and founder of the Heart on My Sleeve organization and the co-founder of Calm Water. Welcome to the show, Mitch Wallace. Thanks so much for having me, Rach. Absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for being on the show. I'm so excited to chat to you because you've had such an incredible journey and there's many, many things that you've experienced and all the great work that you're doing. I'm really excited to chat to you about all of these things. You speak about your younger years and that you felt like you were wearing a mask. And I want to start here because I think this is something that a lot of people experience and perhaps there's a certain life that they think they should be living. And in your case, I've heard you say that from the outside, your life appeared to be all very amazing. So can you describe what that life looked like? Can you paint a picture for us back in those days when you felt like you had to wear a mask? Yeah, it definitely started at an age where I couldn't have been making it up. You know, it was it was seven or eight years old when my mum first saw me doing strange behaviours around the house, like checking and blinking and tapping. And she ended up realising that something was wrong and we went to the doctor and I was diagnosed with OCD and anxiety. And I just remember hearing essentially the doctor say, there's something wrong with you and you're broken. That's not what they said, but that was my interpretation. I, I think that's just a, like a sharp contrast to what I had been experiencing up until that point, which was a loving family. And I was raised on a property with horses and chickens and dogs. And then my mom met my stepdad. We settled down in a beautiful part of Sydney. Teenage years developmentally hitting all my markers, had friends, like went, played lots of sport, did well academically then youngest ever intern at Microsoft in Australia, then went on a crazy trajectory there. By 25, I was working in the States uh, as a global product manager from Seattle. But the whole time there was this parallel path of just complete and utter despair internally and the the masking of an inner, inner turmoil that grew beyond just OCD into panic disorder and depression and depersonalization and eventually culminated in uh, very strong suicidal ideation. Wow. I mean, I feel like that's such a contrast from like what you're just describing there, very, a very successful trajectory by what you're saying in terms of your story. So let's just go back there for a second. So take me back. You graduated and you were the youngest intern at Microsoft, right? And so on that corporate trajectory, is that the kind of life you thought that you should be living? You know, that sort of very successful or is that something that you sort of thought that that's what you wanted for yourself. No, I wanted that. I, I really wanted that. I think a lot of people want a stable job and the brand to boot, you know, the logo to say I'm worthy. I, mm. I think the difference was that I didn't want to 
have to fit a character mold in order to be accepted there. I didn't want my performance at work to be so highly linked to the way that I felt about myself. And Mm. eventually what I would come to realize, I didn't just want to use business as a tool for, you know, earning money for the sake of it. I, I wanted to be able to do that and do good for the world at the same time. When you were going through that period of time where, like you were just saying, that performance was linked to self-worth and kind of being in this kind of business scene, did that kind of continue with the mask Is in terms of how you really felt inside? You felt like you had to almost be this person who did value those things, but internally that's not what you were feeling? Is that sort of, that there was a conflict there? Yeah, I mean, Microsoft, I, I can't say a better word about them. Like they still feel like family. They saw me go from boy to man, the amount of time I spent there in formative years. And there are a lot of caring people. I think the difference was I was very good at hiding it and I didn't want to reveal any parts that would jeopardize this personal brand that I'd created of someone who was very good at what they did. And it's only in retrospect where I've realized that being a human, no matter where you sit on that mental health spectrum and being a high performer, do not trade off. In fact, unfortunately, a lot of times they're correlated because you see these A-type overachievers actually running from deep insecurities. And performance is a kind of tax to pay for the insecurity. It's kind of like a nice curse and gift at the same time. Mm, so you're saying it's sort of the the high performance is masking that insecurity. And so did you were you aware of that at the time? Did you did you feel that that was what was going on or wasn't it wasn't something that was in your conscious awareness at the time? No, no I mean, no, it wasn't yeah. now after lots of therapy, I've realized that a, a lot of who I was was placed in what I did versus the character that sits underneath what you do. I think we need to have a have an identity and feel like we're enough beyond just the external validation points. There has to be some type of intrinsic, I like who I am by virtue of the fact that I am a passionate person or I am a loving person or I am uh, uh, someone who will go over and above to do what's right. Like, these types of values are now so much more important to me than any type of external marker. Uh, But I think your mid-20s is a really interesting time because it's like an existential fertile breeding ground of deep questioning that you really need to figure out who you are. And if you don't have a good answer for it, it'll prompt you down a path of self-discovery which can either be rejected and you sit in shame and denial or accepted and you kind of grow and evolve into the person that will largely carry you for the rest of your life. Mm, You're so right. Those years when you're in your mid-20s where you're really discovering yourself, you really don't, you have to take the time to kind of go within and figure out who you are. And and if you don't, it will at some point, you will have to do it at some point, I, I suppose. But for you, it was going through this trajectory of being in this corporate world and and, and I guess realizing these points of external validation were creating your identity, but in actual fact, you wanted to have these internal intrinsic values expressed more than what was being expressed in your current reality at the time. 100%. Yeah. You've also talked about perfectionism, which I think is linked with this as well, right? And, and this idea of being perfect and 
even to the point of just even appearing perfect, even if you know you're not perfect inside and appearing perfect to everybody else. So, you know, where do you think this perfectionism comes from just generally, but also for you, that drive to be perfect, where do you think that you at that point in time in your mid twenties felt like you had to be perfect? Where did that belief come from? The same place where I think it comes from with everyone, which is if you take it back to a core needs discussion, you know, Maslow tried to framework this out for us with shelter and food and water I think what sits on par with survival needs, if not even before it to some extent, depending on who you ask, is connection. We want to feel connected. I think connection for a lot of people is the meaning of life. It's the glue of resilience. And it is definitely one of the things that promotes mental well-being. Now, if our biology is wired to allow us to feel accepted, part of a pack, part of a tribe, then we're going to be permanently on the lookout for things that will push us away from that. So parts of ourselves that will get us, that will bring up shame. And we're going to be hyper involved in parts of us that enable other people to validate us and bring us into connection, into tribe and front facing physical feats are a very quick win for the ego and for society and the tribe to say, come closer. So perfectionism is almost an, a tendency to fill a worth void with a social drug that is a quick fix, but very quickly dissipates. Yeah, wow. It's, that's so fascinating that you connected it to perfectionism connected to connection because you're right obviously all of us are human we all have that need to connect and feel almost like we belong right we belong as part of like you were saying part of that tribe and so yeah and so that's so interesting that you you're breaking it down that way that again that you mentioned the ego as well that it's a win for the ego and I guess for people listening who maybe aren't as familiar with those different parts of ourselves and sometimes I think when people say the word ego, sometimes it's, I guess, perceived as you're arrogant or something like that, rather than everybody has an ego and that's a a separate part to us. So can you kind of go into that a little bit more and just explain why that feeds the ego so much, why that external validation and those outside wins really fuel the ego? So from a psychological sense, the term ego was initially coined in the Freudian phase by Freud, like when psychology wasn't even a thing. And ego essentially essentially represented part of the psyche that was in our conscious awareness. You can almost replace the word ego with protector. Mm. Its job is to protect our core emotional needs. And part of having an ego is having an identity the ego will perpetually try to enforce an identity so that it feels like it has a sane play box to constrain itself around. Like I am Mitch, that is an ego, that is a conscious awareness of a living thing that it can protect. Now, the problem is, is that when it binds, when the ego binds itself to a part of personality that it feels is a certain go-to point of reference for identifying itself like Mitch, achiever, 
Mm-hmm. Okay, I guess that's who I am, or Mitch the businessman, or Mitch the football star. It, it's looking for a certain box to put yourself in, and then we'll do whatever it takes to enforce evidence for that and try and mitigate evidence against it. So in the early years, if the main way of feeling like you had something to hold on to as an identity was to achieve then the rest of your life, it'll move beyond ego into your subconscious brain that I now need to do that in order to survive. Mm. In order to be loved, in order to be accepted by the tribe, essentially. And it becomes a an unconscious belief that you don't even know, you might not yes. even be aware that you have that. Yeah. And, and when I use the word survive, I don't just mean in a physical anatomical sense. I mean, survive from an emotional and in order for the ego to perpetuate, it needs to be enforced with uh, a belief that it is safe and, and protected and protectable. And therefore, I'm going to give it the the insecurity it needs, the fossil fuel to keep burning that fire. Yeah. I find it so fascinating the ego. I, th- I feel like we could talk about that for for a while. Oh, but yeah, I want to come absolutely. back. I want to come back to the point where of your story of so you were you know doing your your corporate trajectory and you're wearing this mask. And I wanted to find out what the tipping point was for you because at some point, obviously, you you realize that you were wearing a mask. And aside from what happened in your childhood, but then moving along this path where you know this identity that you were portraying, I suppose, is that you really liked external validation according to what that success was supposed to look like. So tell me about the exact moment when you realized you couldn't wear this mask anymore and that you really, that internal conflict of, of needing those internal intrinsic values to be expressed. What was going on there? What happened there? It wasn't a choice. I think for a lot of people, we imagine this moment where you're like, I'm not okay. And it's, it's this really courageous thing that we work up to. I hope it is. That's exactly what we're trying to do with Heart on My Sleeve as the charity is not wait till rock bottom and breaking Mm -hmm. point for people to stop pretending and to sleeve, to tell someone I'm not doing well. And also Heart on My Sleeve, by the way, stands for accepting within yourself, telling yourself I'm not okay. That's sometimes harder than saying it out loud to another. Yeah. Um, But the moment for me was just complete symptom mayhem like I I was struggling my whole life but for whatever reason at this particular point where I broke down I was just I could barely make it through a day and that was a function of lots of things living away from home being busy at work but I think I just hit the point where pretending became too painful Mm. and I literally got on my knees and looked up at the sky and I was like all right it's I'm not good I need to do something here. I need help. And it was then and only then once I surrendered to myself before anything else that things started to get better. Yeah. I mean, I feel like wearing a mask actually takes a lot of effort and, you you know, you're shielding or hiding your real self, protecting your, your real self from the world, I guess, in a way. So in that moment where you where it just became too painful. And I know a lot of people I've spoken to on the podcast have had this moment of hitting rock bottom and almost like a mm. dark night of the soul moment where you've described it. It literally is, there is no choice. There's only, I can't do this anymore. It's just too painful to stay here. So I need to make a change. So tell me about the start of that journey into accepting that that was where you were at and, and 
what that felt like for you because sometimes that can be like you were just saying that's hard sometimes to admit to yourself that you're not doing okay look at all these things that I've got in my life and yet I'm not all right so how was that how was that process of of that just surrender for you I mean mine wasn't just like a I've had a few bad days and or even a few bad weeks I'm feeling kind of low mine was like I'm at that point in my mid twenties and from the age of seven had such complex mental illness that it debilitated every waking moment of my existence. Mm. And I was scraping by despite overperforming externally. So I always knew that I wasn't okay. I just never accepted it. The acceptance came when it wasn't a choice. When I remember one day my friend had to literally carry me out of building 37 in Seattle because I was having repetitive panic attacks. And I thought I was about to go into a psychotic break and they took me to the doctor and, and the doctor was like, this guy needs serious clinical intervention. And that made me feel even more freaked out because I'm like, oh my God, I am crazy. All these narratives I've been telling myself are true. And it, it was at that point where, where, I mean, rock bottom can be a trampoline. I don't mm. advocate for for waiting for that moment. But yeah. I think the thing, you know, a word we've been using in this chat so far, Rach, is the word ego. I think what rock bottom is, is the finally letting go of ego so yeah. that truth can emerge and healing can be done. The ego has a good intention to protect us, but more often than not, it's the culprit of keeping us sick. Yes, because it's trying to protect us and it's... And it doesn't. It doesn't really matter what it is, whether that thing is good or bad. It doesn't have. It doesn't have that perception. I don't think it's just protecting you from keeping you in that identity that you've so aligned yourself with up until that point. So there was a moment I've heard you talk about where you where you heard somebody else that was going through something similar. That was a really pivotal moment for you. Can you tell me about that moment and basically how important that was for you to hear? Yeah, I mean, without stumbling across a YouTube video, I wouldn't be here today. Mm. In my darkest hour and ironically, not ironically, miraculously, spiritually, who knows, but it was like very shortly after surrendering and admitting to myself that I wasn't okay, this guy popped up on my screen and he was telling his story and he was putting words to feelings, sensations and emotions and stuff that uh, no one had ever done before in my life. And it was the first time ever that I felt understood. Mm. And in retrospect, what that represented wasn't a cure, you know, decades worth of pathology doesn't evaporate overnight. What his story did, though, was almost put a pin in the inflammation of shame and loneliness and disconnection that I'd been feeling my whole life that was trying to protect a core wound but in doing so was keeping me sick. It's as if his his authentic connection just started to evaporate these bullshit stories that were that were slowly killing me and enable me to let them go and finally address the problem that I'd been running away from my whole life. Mm. I feel like that's such a powerful moment because in that moment, like we're saying, you you felt understood, you felt seen and you felt heard. Can you tell me the importance is of being seen and and being heard, like what that feels like when for so long you've not felt that, when you've not felt you've been understood and you finally can relate to somebody almost in a way. 
it's so important that I've devoted my whole life to it. Yeah. Like it is, it's the coping tool. It's the protective factor. It is the essence of life is connection. And, you know, they did a meta-analysis as to why does therapy work? Why do people who talk about their feelings get better? And they, the APA showed that it didn't matter whether you did cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy, the sensitive variable that got people better was the nature of the relationship formed. So whether someone felt seen, heard, and understood got them better way more than the type of practical intervention used. Now, what we can draw from that is that care is literally the medicinal component of a relationship, not the content of what you say. People don't need to be fixed. They need to be loved. And they can very often solve their own problems or that in which they can't solve themselves. They will get the space and the belief to be able to do so under the right conditions of connection. When we allow others to be in a non-judgmental container without trying to solve them or make it go away, and actually leaning into that pain and offering them a place of refuge to share it and hold it with them. Like, for example, during grief, instead of saying, what can I do to help? Or do you want to come over this weekend? I'll cook you dinner, or at least they're in a better place. Simply leaning in and asking, what do you miss about that person the most? Can be the most therapeutic component of it. You feel as if you're making it worse by going toward the problem. But it is in actuality that you need to feel things to heal things. If you don't feel there's a tax to pay on everything and the tax is a feeling. If you don't feel it, it will splinter, fracture and play out in the form of relationships, performance at work, distressed emotional tolerance. So if we connect and feel together, we release and move beyond the pain. Mm, And you touch on quite a few points in that just being able to offer and hold space for someone and to allow them, give them, it gives them permission to have those feelings come up, I suppose, in a way. And if they feel safe enough to express those feelings, which they may not previously have done before. But I do, I do feel that a lot of people are afraid to feel their feelings, you know, and so, yeah. And so what could you suggest to people who are afraid of that? Because sometimes I think, especially when we're going through difficult times and whether that is on the continuum of mental illness, whether you're, you know, sort of right in the trunks of it or you're going through a hard time, there's a multitude of things that happen in life where we feel things and there's different ways people cope with those feelings, especially ones that are more difficult, like pain and sadness and things like that. So what would be your suggestion for someone who may be listening, who feels, knows that they feel something, but are afraid to look at those feelings? Because I think that's probably the one of the biggest blockers to actually releasing the pain. Yeah, three things. First is understanding that it's completely normal. Your brain is hardwired to avoid pain, mm. literally hardwired. It is, its job is to keep you safe. And said another way, its job is to mitigate risk. Uh, It doesn't really care if you're happy. That is why uh, people stay in relationships that are toxic and go to jobs that they hate because the brain's definition of safe, its main job, is what's certain and familiar. If it's knowable, it feels good and the brain's like, cool. So pain, we actually avoid five times more than we are likely to do anything else. It takes five positive emotions to outweigh one negative emotion. That is why you can 
have like a whole year of bliss with your romantic partner and then have like one argument you can you're rethinking the entire relationship or if you have a performance view with your boss and they spend the whole time telling you that you're awesome and give you one bit of feedback and you think you're getting fired the brain will gravitate to what's negative because its job is to avoid pain mm. so that's why emotions are so hard to overcome because your body is telling you do not feel this hard thing but that doesn't mean that it's wrong for the same reason that when you go to the gym you're not building muscles you're tearing them Yes. You're going against your body's definition of what it wants, which is caloric efficiency and repair, and you're going in and throwing weight at it so it rips. But we do that because we know that lifting weights promotes longevity and strength and it's good for us. Mm. What's good for us might require tension and it might require going through and into pain in order to grow. In fact, growth it, by definition is going through pain to repair. So mm -hmm. the first thing is understanding your body's going to tell you that something's wrong and to avoid pain, you need to override it. The second thing is you can do hard things. As a society, and this is coming from the feelings guy, hard on my sleeve. I'm the feelings guy, man. Yeah. But we have gone way too soft. Our yeah. resilience is just declining and we, mm. we forgot that we can do hard shit. No one has ever died because something is awkward. No one has ever died because something's uncomfortable. Mm. Do it. Which leads me to point three, if you can't do it for yourself, do it for people that you love and that love you. A child is 42% more likely to get depression if their father has depression. Wow. I've studied under Harvard psychologists and interviewed them on my podcast and they've said that the greatest predictor of a human's thriving in life outside of their genetics is the nature of their parents' story, whether they've made peace with and sense of their past and how it's playing out in their future. So I mean, what other motivator could you need than wanting to make the world a better place and or supporting those that you love, ironically, by looking and working on yourself? Yeah, I mean, there's so many things that you said there that I feel like are such great points. And with that analogy to when you go to the gym and you break down those muscles, I mean, I definitely have, I don't know whose quote it is, but I've definitely read this somewhere where humans perceive emotional pain to be akin to or worse than physical pain, even though, we're, like you said, we're not going to die from it. And it's one of those things that, it, that so many people avoid going through. But framing it that way to think about any growth feels uncomfortable. And I really like what you said about going through the pain to repair and grow and framing it like that in terms of your emotional well-being, definitely something that I haven't heard framed that way before. And I think it's a really great way to talk to ourselves about that going through those emotions. I've definitely also heard you say in your early years, like when you were talking about being six or seven and you were diagnosed with OCD and you saw some psychs and counsellors and never felt like you were understood. And obviously now as a mental health expert and you've got your master's in clinical psychology, there's a gap that's been bridged there from feeling like there was almost like you had no faith in the system in, in a way. I've heard you say that. And so going from that place to obviously going on to study it and become an expert yourself, where was the gap that was bridged there in terms of the difference and shift in perspective on that? Because you could e have easily gone through your journey and, and not gone to see a psych, you know, not yeah. gone to see a mental health professional. Two things. One is when you go through the degree and you study it, you meet psychs, you 
I'm so invested in the mental health landscape now. I've met some of my heroes, you know. It's like mm. if you grew up watching Roger Federer play tennis and you played tennis with him, like that's kind of happening to me in real time, which I'm stupidly grateful for. But you re- like psych is a field you get into not because you're good at something, it's because you're bad at something so you've wanted to invest in it. Like, you know, a bodybuilder will naturally probably lift weights because their physique is like more gifted than others. You're like, I can put on muscle well and I'm kind of taller and broader, so I'm going to triple down. Mm. Almost every psych ever gets into it because they've got their own shit. Yeah. (laughs) Therefore, when you realize that, it becomes so much less intimidating. I think I was so intimidated by this God-like figures who would dictate my sanity. And then you're on the other side and you're like, oh, they're just working it out as they go along as well. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, I, you know, I don't want to poo-poo on therapy because it's been one of the things that's been instrumental to getting me here. And I think there's a lot of good therapists out there. Mining the person who I see is a fucking life changer. But a lot of psychologists, uh, the education to become a psych is very clinical. Like you do heaps of stats and you study frameworks and all that stuff. You don't actually do a ton of counseling in the education part of becoming a psych, whereas the relationship is the medicinal component for the most part in a lot of these applications to the frameworks. Mm -hmm. And we overlook the connection piece, even in the education system with psychs. Um, And the third part is that I think when you're when you become a professional a lot of things desensitize very quickly like i'm not doing clinical practice i but i am in this space full time before recording this podcast with you rach i just stood in front of 300 people at a company and did a keynote for an hour and i've got many more this week and so daily i'll be told about people's deepest darkest secrets and suicidal ideation sometimes dozens of times a day, which is probably even more than a psych would in private practice. Therefore, they if it's happening to me, I can only imagine happening to them that you can overlook just how incredibly sensitive a, a pain point can be when, when they're coming to you with it. And I remember I used to walk into therapy petrified. I could tell if the psychologist's eyebrow would raise one millimeter giving a look of confusion or fear and then that would send me off on a spiral and i think once once you're so habituated to this type of conversation a therapist can lose that really delicate edge that needs to be applied in the early days of therapy yeah it's it's the norm to them which it wouldn't be to the an average person because obviously they're probably not talking about it to very many people. So I understand what you're saying. And that connection, I think, you're bringing it back to that connection and the relationship between a therapist and the client is the piece that will determine how effective that therapy is going to be for, for people. Because I, I do feel there are a lot of people that have seen a psych and, and maybe don't see that much value in it sometimes when how am I just talking about it? You know, how's that going to help anything? And again, I think it's an avoidance thing of of not also wanting to feel the feelings, but maybe the relationship between the therapist and client isn't amazing as well. So they don't feel seen and heard and understood and that, that space isn't created for, you know, those things to come up. Now, in terms of your own process, obviously going through self-reflection a lot and facing that pain and all of those kinds of things. Do you have a specific process that you go through in terms of reflecting on 
your own emotions and things like that because I do feel maybe that's a tool that people can use to do on their own because I'm not sure if people take a lot of time to self-reflect, but it's a really powerful thing that you can do to, to learn and grow and, and learn more about yourself. So are there anything that you can suggest to people to do what you do basically for your self-reflection process? Yeah, probably two things. One is journaling. So yes. the writing down, I mean, I, you should see my one note. It's like a madman's ramblings, <laughs> um, but so helpful for me. You know, when something happens and you're feeling off, write down what's going on. So like facts and situational attributes, what do I feel and describe the feeling? And then what's the story I'm telling myself about that? Because there's three layers to any issue, the facts, the feelings, and the meaning. And you need to coherence of all three in order to be able to process, work with, or change something. Yeah. The other thing is understanding that an emotion is a physical experience. You need a, an emotion cannot exist without a body to reside in. Um, so you can't think about an emotion. You physically have to feel it. And so sometimes when something comes up, you know, if I'm like, oh, there's some anger. I thought it was sadness, but it's actually anger because I can feel this searing, almost like fire-like tingling in my chest. Bringing, and mindfulness is key in order to process feelings properly, but bringing a mindful, soft awareness where you don't absorb yourself into the feeling you sit and you don't attach or identify with it, but simply noticing it and describing it and and having an awareness of it and then naturally it will dissipate you'll get you'll build emotional tolerance every time you feel something your brain does a bicep curl if you don't run away from it your brain does a bicep curl and so that mindful awareness will create a bigger container in order for these things to to hold and move past yeah i love that so those three things again guys if you're doing your journaling one is write down the facts or situation circumstance two write down the feelings and three write down the meaning i'm so glad that you have separated like that because i think too we forget that we actually create meaning and put that onto an emotion. So the story that you're telling yourself is something that your your mind is telling you, a narrative that you've made up from, could be you've made it up, you've heard it somewhere. And to that, on top of that, there's a reaction. So there's almost like you will react to the story that you are telling yourself as well. And the story, Rach, just because this is super important, the story you tell yourself is far more of a predictor uh, on the impact than the situation itself. Yes. Often we'll just go through situational facts and we'll have no idea that none of that means shit. It is mm. all the story that's playing out below that. And if you shift the story, you shift the impact. Because if you don't have awareness of the story, to your point, you're now going to bring up a whole secondary range of emotions where you're reacting to a reaction and then the whole cycle perpetuates. Yeah. And if you get stuck in that, I suppose it's, it's being unaware of what's going on inside you that creates that reaction because you're just buying into that story. You're believing it to be a hundred percent true when in actual fact, if you question, like you said, in your journaling, what is the story that I'm telling myself is, is immediate separation between you and the story, right? So yeah, that's a really great journal practice for you guys listening to uh, get into. Now, in addition to this self-reflection process, which is so important, I think what is connected to this is self-acceptance and self-worth, which we touched on earlier. And, you know, if we're talking about change and you've spoken about how making a change, I guess, is is part, yes, 
you know, we need to be aware, but then it's about taking action. But before you can take the action and make the change, you need to accept who you are and where you are right now. And for a lot of people, they find it hard to accept themselves as they are, particularly if they're not feeling the best. And we did touch on this earlier. And this is probably the time when a lot of those negative stories and negative narratives sort of run through our minds. So what are your best suggestions there for increasing your sense of self-worth and accepting yourself as you are, no matter where you are on that journey? Uh, yeah, you, you you said a really important sentence as you were framing up that question, acceptance and change. In the West, we see those things as polar opposites. In the East, they see those two things as necessary to coexist. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is in the West, we kind of define acceptance as to surrender, to roll over and to let something win. And we therefore, we can't change. We've decided to stay the same. Whereas like you know, if I take a Buddhist lens on this from a philosophical perspective, it's very much that I cannot make a change until I first accept where I am. The predecessor or enabler of change is first surrendering to truth. It would be insane to not surrender to what is right now. That is reality. The denial of reality is delusion. So Mm -hmm. in order to create a different reality, we first just need to be fully at peace and at truth with what is real right now. So, you know, I've never heard someone get sober if they're a proper alcoholic without four words leaving their mouth first. I am an alcoholic. Mm. You cannot go via truth and acceptance of the present in order to get to a different future. You must meet yourself where you are. Mm. Now, what prevents you from meeting yourself where you are is shame. And the only way to bypass shame is connection. So, We have more empathetic conversations of people saying, it's okay, I got you, I see you, I hear you, you are enough and you're lovable even with your flaws. That will reduce shame, allow someone to accept where they are and then make the necessary changes to to create a new reality. Mm. So it's it's almost finding, and this is why, this is a great little segue into Heart on Your Sleeve and and basically if you haven't heard about it, guys, it's a global mental health movement that Mitch obviously has founded and it's creating those connections allowing or hold almost like creating the space holding that platform for those connections to happen so that these things can occur in terms of change and and self-awareness and reflection all those kinds of things so tell me a little bit more about the organization what it does specifically and and I'm really keen to know what the biggest impact you're seeing of this movement on people's mental health and emotional well-being what's been the, the you know sort of the trickle effect from starting this platform starting this this organization yeah so what it really stands for is is emotional authenticity we're trying to create a, a society workplaces and communities that open their heart to a different type of conversation not one that's coming from the head where we just tick boxes, but one that is truly felt and people reveal things that are difficult because we can do hard things. And it is through that vulnerable, authentic connection that we will get better. You know, you speak about impact. I look at Heart on My Sleeve's impact in two ways, the platform and then the service. The platform is really the idea outside of, you know, what things do you do, whether that be the groups and all that stuff. The platform is giving a visible, tangible thing. Like people draw in tattoo hearts in their arms and they wear the merch and they rally around the concept and they share that concept on social media as something that we should be talking about more. But then also they do the behavior change that we want to see. They actually use the platform, the visual cue, the heart on my sleeve thing 
to express that vulnerability and have almost an excuse or reason to role model authenticity, that's mm-hmm. where we see huge change. And we're lucky in that the brand is quite tactile, you know, unlike other brands, it is literally, you know, a cliche in the English language to wear your heart on your sleeve and something that can be physically done. Yeah. Um, so I think that that enables us to have more of a, a macro meta culture thing going on at, at people raising awareness and feeling more comfortable with, with authenticity. Then we have like a services lens where um, the physical things that we go and do, uh, what our flagship program that we're really proud of is circles. So free group sharing interactions where people can get it off their chest and onto their sleeve in a safe space, agnostic to any problem set or diagnosis. And it is through that connection and healing and our unique style of realness that we've been able to provide a lot of therapeutic outcomes again in the community and in the workplace. So I'm very proud of not just what we stand for, but also what we do and can't wait to see it grow. Right now we have the campaign, I'm not okay, the three strongest words you can say that's pasted across TV stations and cinema and out of home all across the country. And um, yeah, I, I think the best way to get involved and support us, one, tell your story, wear your heart on your sleeve, um, or two, uh, donate to us so that we can go and change people's lives by running the initiatives that we do. Yeah, amazing. So where can people go to find all of that information to get involved with all of that? We'll drop that now. Heartonmysleeve.org or any any of our socials, Heart on My Sleeve. And then in order to connect with me more as the founder of that organization, but also a mental health advocate expert in my own right with tons and tons of content, uh, Mitch Wallace, Wallace with an I-S. So M-I-T-C-H-W-A-L-L-I-S. Amazing. So we're going to drop all of those links in the show notes, guys. But I do have a final three questions for you, Mitch, before you go. So final quick three questions. What drives you? Pain. Pain. If I get a sentence instead of a word, transmuting or alchemizing pain and turning it into meaning, purpose and service. I love that so much. It's such a great positive reframe on pain, essentially, which is so good. Amazing. If you had a regret or something in your life that you could redo or relive, what would that be and why? Yeah, such a cliche to say I don't have any regrets. Of course (laughs) I do. Anyone who says that is lying. I think it's that... I don't have any regrets that I haven't either learnt from, cleaned up or built on, so therefore they can't be a regret by definition anymore. Mm. Um, one thing I would do different, I just wish the learnings and insights that I have now I got sooner. Yes. Yeah. I would have saved a lot of time, a lot of pain. Yeah, but if you hadn't gone through all those things, you probably wouldn't well, have Well, this is lessons, the circular right? loop, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I have the same thing. I'm like, I wish I I wish I knew all the things that I know now and I wish I had that when I was in my early 20s to be able to live my 20s with what I know now, but it's not to be. And I think a lot of people are the same. Really cool. Yeah. And what is the biggest lesson you have learned in your life so far? Six words. The truth will truth set you set free. free. I like that one. Can you give an example of when you learned it? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, so many. One off the top of my head, I I told myself I was just anxious my whole life. I was like, yeah, you just have anxiety. Everyone's got anxiety. Just like da-da-da. Whereas deep down I knew in my gut this was more than anxiety. Mm-hmm. This was OCD. This was depersonalization disorder. This was a whole bunch of stuff that would eventually come to the fore. But I kept treating it like I had anxiety, i.e. treating it, doing breathing techniques and all that type of stuff. 
when actually I needed to get in and do a shit ton of heavy lifting work because I had stuff that was a lot more complex, but I couldn't accept that because if I accepted that, that would mean that I'm accepting that I'm crazy. Mm. Now, the moment that I went, got broken down so much that I was like, you know what? Fuck it. If it means I'm crazy, whatever it takes, I just refuse to live this life anymore. That's the moment things actually started to get better. Yeah. The Like truth, I mean, almost every religion can be pretty much synonymized, if that's a word, to some extent with the word truth. I even think that God is, the, is a derivative of the word truth. Like mm. life is about living with what is. And it's the denial of what is where most suffering lies. Yes, I so love that. And I think it's, right, it's, again, it's that acceptance. It's the acceptance of what the truth is. And if we can all, I guess, be more courageous to live in truth, I think that's the point 100. of it, isn't it? Yeah. 100. Because it's scary. Sometimes the truth is scary and that's why we avoid it. Big boy, big girl pants time. <laughs> so that's the big key lesson is the truth will set you free, guys. I really love that. Thank you so much for being on the show, Mitch. I've really loved chatting to you. And thank you so much. We'll Rach. pop all of your links, uh, Mitch Wallace at on Instagram website, also Hard on My Sleeve up as well. And we'll pop them up in the show notes for you guys so you can check it out. Now, make sure you tell us what you loved and learned from this episode by leaving a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. Screenshot this episode, tag us, and share it to your socials. Thank you again, Mitch, for joining me on the show. And thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you next time on the Rachel J Podcast. Mm-hmm.